please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 9. And this morning, I want to conclude our look at Noah and the great flood. And my timing is impeccable because here we are with the rain again. But since it's been a couple of weeks, let's do a quick review. Going back, first we saw the sin of man deserves judgment. And we saw briefly in Genesis 5 the generations of Adam down to Noah and his sons. And in Genesis 6, we learned about the sons of God and the daughters of man. And the result of their actions was wickedness. And God uh, had declared that humankind had 120 years left before it was destroyed. So he was exercising patience rather than wipe out mankind right then and there. And not only was man's wickedness great, but God noted that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And this marked a, a consuming depravity, a, a total depravity. And we read that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and that it grieved him to his heart. And this meant that God felt grief and sorrow over what had become of his perfect creation. And we know that God is grieved by sin. So God determined to hit the reset button and in essence starting things over. He said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of this land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Mankind had deserted its creator and deserved judgment. Well, then we learned that the grace of God provides mercy. We read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It meant that he received the gift of God's grace. And we learned that Noah was righteous because of his faith. It was his faith that led him to obey God. His obedience was a demonstration or evidence of his faith. And then we considered God's plan. God declared to Noah his judgment on mankind. But God said he would also save something, someone from the corruption and the destruction. This was always his plan, even from the beginning in the Garden of Eden. But here God determined to wipe out humanity. But if he wiped out everyone, then he would not be keeping his word when way back in the Garden of Eden, he promised a Redeemer would come. So by his grace, God chose Noah and his family to preserve mankind. And to do this, God gave Noah explicit instructions on how to build an ark and save his family and the animals and the birds and the creeping things. He told Noah to build the ark along with the details of its construction. And we read several times how Noah did all God commanded him. He did all God commanded him. And then we learned of God's provision. In Genesis 7, we saw how Noah held on to his faith over the next 100 years while building the ark and warning others of God's coming judgment. Sometimes it's difficult for us to maintain faith even for a, a day or an hour. Noah maintained faith for 100 years. And we read how Noah was to bring not only pairs of animals to, to mate on the ark, but also extra animals to sacrifice. And then we saw how God sealed up Noah, his family, and the animals in the ark. And we noted the importance of the words, the Lord shut him in, in Genesis 7:16. It is God who provides for your protection and your escape from judgment. 
not you yourself, and not someone else. And he does this through Jesus Christ. Well, the waters came on the 17th day of the second month after Noah turned 600 years old. And not only did the water come from above, but Genesis 7:11 tells us that all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Water came from above and water came from below. The rains fell and fountains of the deep burst forth for 40 days. But the flood was so great that its violent activity lasted for 150 days. As we said, this was no gentle filling of a bathtub and just kind of lolling around. The waves were crashing. It was very violent. And this was over the whole earth, not just a, a local area. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. And then the destruction ended. Well, in Genesis 8, we read that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And this means that God took action regarding the occupants of the ark. He didn't forget Noah, but to remember is to take action. God caused a wind to blow over the earth. The water subsided, and the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens restrained. And then the water receded from the earth gradually. And at the end of 150 days, the water had abated. So there were 150 days of prevailing water, 150 days of receding water. And then at this point, remember, Noah and the animals and his family were in the ark for 300 days. And then the ark had come to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, not on, the, not on Mount Ararat itself. It just says in the mountains of Ararat. So it was in that region. And then... Last time, continuing chapter 8, we considered uh, God's commission. After 40 more days, Noah lets loose a raven. Now, ravens, as he said, are considered among the more intelligent of the birds. But they were considered unclean because they eat carrion. Now, carrion is the rotten or putrefying flesh of dead animals. In Leviticus 11, we find that the Israelites were forbidden to eat ravens and that they were considered detestable. Well, because they ate dead things. And then we saw the raven flying to and fro and leaving the ark and returning. And he likely found plenty of floating dead animals and dead things to eat. But this environment was not a safe place for humans. There was still death and destruction about. And recall that we said that some find a symbolism here in the raven's affinity for death and decay, likening it as to an attachment to sin. And we wondered, do we have an attachment to death and decay that sin brings about? The raven did not point the way to new life. The raven pointed the way to sin and destruction. And after seven days, Noah sent out a dove. And unlike the raven, the dove is considered to be clean. The dove, remember, had nowhere to land. It won't have anything to do with dead animals or carcasses or carrion or anything out there. So it had to return to the ark. It just had nowhere to go. Noah then knows that there's only death outside that ark. There's no life yet. The water still covers the earth. And there's no vegetation that would feed him and feed the animals. So he waited another seven days and then he sent the dove out again. And this time she comes back with an olive leaf. And recall that olive trees grow, grow at lower elevations, which is where doves fly. 
So the fact that the dove brought back the olive leaf indicated that things were drying out and that the earth would be able to soon sustain life. So while the olive leaf indicated that plants are coming back, the return of the dove also indicated that the earth was not ready to fully sustain the humans and the animals because it didn't stay out. It was getting there, but it had to come back. It still couldn't land and and feed and, and relax out there. So Noah waited another seven days and then sent the dove out again. And this time she did not come back. Noah knew that the dove had found a suitable habitat, that it was now safe to go out. So preparations were made to leave the ark. And it's now been almost one year since Noah, his family, and the animals went into the ark. They were in that that boat for one year. Noah took the covering off the ark and could see that the ground is dry. But he didn't leave for another month. He stayed in that ark, even though he could see dry ground, even though that dove had not returned, even though he knew that vegetation was coming back, because Noah was waiting on God. And just as God told Noah to go into the ark, he then told Noah to come out of the ark. Remember, Noah did all that God commanded him. He moved when God told him to move, and he didn't move until God said to do so. And then God gave a new commission. And it was upon God's direction, Noah, his family, the birds and the animals, and every creeping thing left the ark for one purpose. And that was to swarm the earth, to fill the earth, to overrun the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. And recall, this was a reiteration of the same command God gave on the fifth and sixth days of creation. Be fruitful and multiply. God's commission was for all to leave the ark and repopulate the earth. And then once off the ark, Noah built an altar and sacrificed some of every clean animal and every clean bird. Now these were burnt offerings. And we know that burnt offerings are given as an atonement for sin. And that God smelled the pleasing aroma, which indicated that God accepted the sacrifice. If God doesn't smell the sacrifice, he doesn't accept it. And that's an indication God did turn from the sacrifice. It wasn't worthy. And then God declared he will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You notice that nothing changed. Noah wasn't suddenly a single man of great righteousness. Nothing changed. God said the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God also declared that he will never again strike down every living creature as he has done. And then God said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And we looked at that and we said that this is a a single verse right here that points to the fact that things are going to continue. And it refutes this man-made global warming and an inconvenient truth because God had said that as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. We can take confidence that this is not going to change because of man. This is God's decree. God has said that he will not interrupt the cycles of nature. And then we saw God's commands. First, God reiterated his command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis 9-7, God told Noah to increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. 
Now, last time I shared with you some numbers that showed how the entire population of the earth could fit in just a few states of the United States. And that's if everyone was granted a couple of thousand square feet to live in. And it debunks the concerns about overpopulation. Like the fears of global warming and all the attempts to elevate man to godlike status. See, this is the lie that Satan told in the Garden of Eden. You will be like God. And when man assumes that he controls the nature, and that he controls everything that happens, which is in the province of God, he elevates himself to the status of God. And that was what Satan told Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden. Ye shall be like God. And I can't shake my head and wonder at all the inane thoughts and the deeds of man. Adam in rebellion, rebelling against God, ate the forbidden fruit in the garden. He wanted to be like God. He wanted control. And then because of man's sin, the ground was cursed by God. Man did not get the control he wanted. Now he has to toil and sweat to grow food. And the ground would produce thorns and thistles. And Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, man's desire to be God himself is responsible for the shape this world is in. It was man rebelling against God and wanting to take on him the mantle of God that brought about the curse. And instead of repenting and submitting to God, man simply increases his sin and takes upon himself even more of the rights of sovereignty of God and says, well, we control the weather now. He pushes back and does more to reject his creator than turn to him. But the good news is, is that the bondage to corruption will be removed with the return of Jesus Christ. He is the hope that will set the creation free, not us. Christ and Christ alone will bring creation to what God intended. And that's why we should not place our hopes in science or in laws or in man's efforts or in politicians or anything to rescue us out of the dilemma we're in. It is Christ and Christ alone. And then we saw that God reestablished man's dominion over the animals, over the birds, over the creeping things and the, and the fish. But there were some differences. And the first difference is, well, the first of the differences is that animals would now fear man. Before the animals didn't, but now they would fear man. And the second difference is that man can now eat the animals. As I said before, if they were going to eat me, I'd probably be afraid of them too. Remember that God put a condition on all this. While man can eat the flesh of animals, he cannot eat the blood of the animals. Because the blood is considered the life of all animals, including man. And this is where we left off last time. So let's pick it up for our, our first point. And this is the image of God in man. The image of God in man. So follow along as I read in Genesis 9. I'm going to start with verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, 
From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Man can eat animals and that necessarily means that he must kill them. But notice in verse 5, animals are not to kill man. Man can kill the animals, but the animals are not to kill man. When God gave the law to Moses, he addressed situations in which an animal killed a man. For example, in Leviticus 21:28, he said, When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh not eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But, verse 29 explains further, but if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned and has not kept it in and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. Leviticus 21.35 says, When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price. And the dead beast they shall also share. If an animal kills a man, that animal must die. But if an animal kills another animal, it is allowed to live. So it's obvious from our passage here in Genesis, as well as what we've just seen in Leviticus, that God values human life over all other life. Today, we can find people who put a premium on animal life. Some even declare that they would value animals over humans. Consider the May 2016 incident at the Cincinnati Zoo. A three-year-old boy climbed into the enclosure of Harambe, a 440-pound western lowland gorilla. You may have seen the video on, on YouTube or on the news. The video is still viewable on the internet and you can see the gorilla dragging the boy through the water, through the moat and then propping him up and pushing him down. The zookeepers, when they saw this, made the decision to shoot and kill the gorilla because of the danger to the child. There was no choice. This little boy was in danger. But their actions were met with outrage. Some declared the killing of the gorilla even though the child's life was endangered, was wrong. They decried the actions of the zookeepers in taking the life of this gorilla, even though the boy was in danger, pushing down the boy, possibly drowning the boy or mauling the boy. But that didn't matter to them. The premium was on the life of the animal. If we look around us, oftentimes acts of animal cruelty often bring a greater outrage than acts of child abuse. We want people sent away to prison for many, many years when they harm a dog or a cat or an animal. But we turn our, our eyes, we, turn, we make blind eyes towards kids that are abused and, and neglected. There's a group called the Non-Human Rights Project. And they're a civil rights organization that is working to achieve actual legal rights for species other than our own. Their mission is to change the legal status of appropriate non-human animals from mere things 
which lacked the capacity <clears throat> to possess any legal right to persons who possess fundamental rights as body integrity and body liberty. They want the animals to be persons. Body integrity and body liberty for these animals. But where is their outcry over the body integrity and body liberty of the unborn? They're silent on that. A quick glance at the comments on their website shows the bankruptcy of the evolutionary theory. Many claim that humans are just animals, that human superiority is a myth, and this completely denies God's created order. God tells Noah that as for his, Noah's lifeblood, he would require a reckoning from every beast. And not just a reckoning from beasts, but a reckoning from man. He said, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And we find in verse 6, God's standard. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And this is a very key passage. We find this reflective of what happened in the garden when God said, let us create man in our own image. Well, first let's consider what it means that God made man in his own image. We hear that, but what does that mean? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us outright what this means. There's no passage that said, when God said, let us make man in our own image, this is what we meant. And it's been the subject of a lot of theological debate. Some hold that it applies to our bodily form and the fact that we walk upright. But that can't be because we know that God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. Jesus told the woman at the well that God is spirit in John 4, 24. Some hold that being made in the image of God refers to the personal nature of man. We have a, a sense of self. We're, we have self-awareness. and we, we have individuality. We're all unique people. We have a morality, or rather we have a capacity to know the difference between good and evil. I'm not altogether sure we exercise a morality as often as we should. But it's more than just this. Something it has to do with our intelligence. We are thinking, reasoning beings. And we can create and we can, we can do things with our minds. Something that it has to do with our emotions. We can feel, we can feel grief, we can feel love, we can feel anger, we can feel sorrow. God has these emotions as well. There is morality, as I mentioned before, that we as moral beings set laws and we know what is right and what is wrong and we have an ethic. Some say that it has to do with our spirituality and even our sociability, that we are more than just a, a mass of of flesh and, and blood and bones, but we are in fact spiritual beings. We have a soul. And that we are social, that we interact with each other, that we are able to communicate and, and we group together. Something that is because of our dominion over creation. But if any one of these were the sole explanation, then it could be said that someone who was smarter or more obedient or perhaps less disobedient would be the better term, 
to someone who loved more, would that mean they had more of the image of God because it was just one of these things? Or that because of their depravity, some don't bear the image of God at all because it's completely wiped out? What about a newborn who exhibits only the traits of hunger and thirst and sleepiness and discomfort? Is, that, is the baby in the image of God? He doesn't demonstrate all the other attributes at that point. Or how about the unborn altogether in the womb? The image of God is more than any one of these or all of these. It's something each of us is created with. And it reflects the communicable attributes of God. Not just one of them. Oh, we think, as God thinks. We love as God loves. We show mercy as God shows mercy. And we can understand that about God because we have these attributes within us. Certainly not to his perfection or his eternality with these attributes. But nonetheless, we can show them. And the image of God is manifested in our creative abilities. How many things have we fashioned? How many things have we put together? How many things have we thought of doing? See, God is a God who creates and created the world. The image of God is manifested in our exercise of dominion. We all know that God is sovereign over all. But he ascribed to man dominion over the earth, dominion over the animals, to keep and to tend the garden. And of course, the image of God is manifested in our relationships. What did Jesus say? Love one another as I have loved you. We are capable of loving. The two great commandments are thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And the second greatest commandment is thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. So we have the capacity to develop relationships with God and with other people. Now, some wrongfully teach that the image of God is erased in sinful man and it's restored only upon salvation. So that if you're not saved, you no longer bear the image of God. That's incorrect. You see, it's wrong to kill any human being because even though sin has corrupted him, he still retains the image of God. God never said it's okay to kill the sinner and not the saint. It is wrong to murder all the way around. Now to be sure, the image of God in man is distorted and it's lessened, but it is there nonetheless. It is God's imprint on each of us. And yet, and yet we are being renewed in the image of God. Romans 8.29 tells us that those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In Ephesians 4, 24, 22 to 24, we are told to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
To be renewed in the spirit of your mind refers to a, a moral dimension. It deals with the decisions we make. And it deals with the actions that we take. Our very thoughts and deeds take on a new purpose so that no longer every intention of the thoughts of our hearts, they're not only evil continually. This is what being renewed is. We are able not to sin. You see, when Adam was created, he was able to not sin. And he was able to sin. After the fall, Adam was only able to sin. After Jesus Christ, we are able not to sin. Doesn't mean we don't sin, but we are able not to sin. And then when we are transformed into glory, as we all meet in heaven after the second coming, after he returns, and we are gathered as the elect in God's heaven, we will then be not able to sin. What a great day that will be from able not to sin to not able to sin. In Colossians 3, 9 and 10, we read, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. This renewal process is an ongoing thing. We haven't arrived yet. This is our progressive sanctification. We all still struggle with sin. None of us is perfected. But I want you to notice what Colossians said, being renewed in knowledge. There is an element here of learning that must take place to be renewed in knowledge. And you cannot grow in knowledge unless you learn about Him and what He wants of you and for you. And to do that, you must read, you must study, you must learn your Bible. God has provided that for us, and that is the source of our knowledge. It is His Word. It is not listening to man. It is not philosophy. It is not science. It is not everything that makes us think we're wise and smart. It is from God's Word. So if we are to be renewed in knowledge, we must read our Bible. We must study them. We must meditate on what the Lord has provided us, His Word, His truth. This is why Pastor Ron, Pastor Steve, and I spend so much effort in exhorting and pleading with you to please read your Bibles, read your Bibles, read your Bibles. Because this is how we are renewed in knowledge, by His words. And without the knowledge that God gives us in Scripture, you cannot hope to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Friends, there are those who might beat you down with claims that you cannot change. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once a bitter, angry person, always a bitter, angry person. Once a victim, always a victim. These are far what we were, from what we were created to be. And I'm here to tell you that through Christ, you can be renewed. You can be conformed to His image. If you only follow Him. If you follow Him. And then finally, we are to understand that being created in the image of God means to represent Him. Indeed, man was created to rule over the earth that God created. 
Governments are established by God to carry out his justice. We read this in Romans 13. To attack something made in the image of one is to attack the person. But consider the statues and the posters and the paintings of various public or political leaders that are all about the world. And know from the news and from things we read how they're toppled and they're defaced and people paint things on them. You're familiar with the term burned in effigy, where someone was burned in effigy? This is an attack on the representation or image of another. Some people burn the American flag, which represents all of us as a society. They burn the flag as an attack on America. See, these actions are not an assault against stone or against paper or against paint or against fabric. They are directed at that which is represented in stone or on paper or in paint or in fabric. Likewise, when we murder, when we attack another human being created in the image of God, the attack is not merely against the substance of the creation. We are, after all, all of us made of dust. It is not an attack on dust. It is an attack against the creator in whose image the dust was formed. An attack against man is an attack against that which God values. He values it so much so that he sent his son as a redemption for mankind. An attack against another human being is an attack against God. Consider then the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 21, 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or consider what was written in James. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. To attack that which was created in the image of God is to attack God. That's not to say that we're God. We're not little gods. We are created in his image. And just as we attack those stone images or those paper images, when man is attacked, they are attacking God, whose image is in that man. Brothers and sisters, when they persecute you, and they will, all for your faith in Christ, they are attacking God. They see the image of Christ in you. It is not you. They are rebelling against God, and they are attacking God. But we must move on. We read next that God makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Noah. Follow along as I read, starting with verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you 
the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And this leads to my second point, the patience of God with man. The image of God in man, the patience of God with man. The Noahic covenant is the first of the great covenants in Scripture that God initiates. And you may know many of the other covenants. There is this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. In this case, the covenant is between God and man and, and the animals. Some covenants call for each party to perform certain functions. Well, consider the, the Mosaic covenant. The Lord would be the God of Israel, their provider and their protector, and Israel would follow and obey God. It was a conditional covenant. If Israel did not follow and obey God, they would not be blessed. The Noahic covenant, the one that God has just given, is not conditional. It's not something that man can change. It's not based on the actions of man. The provisions of the covenant apply only to God. He promises not to wipe out all flesh by water. He promises to remember the covenant by seeing the rainbow. There is absolutely no obligation on man's part. He cannot negate the covenant. A covenant are usually given a sign. The Abrahamic covenant had circumcision as a sign. The Mosaic covenant had the Sabbath as a sign. The New Covenant has the Lord's Supper as a sign of the covenant. Here, God said that he would set his bow in the cloud. And of course, we recognize this as the rainbow. This sign is an assurance that God will remember his promise not to destroy all flesh by water. And recall, it doesn't mean that God will forget what's happening. He will take action. It means he will act. He will act so as not to destroy all flesh by flood. But notice some things about this covenant. Note first that God makes this covenant with Noah and his sons and with all of your offspring after you. Since we've already established that we are descendants or offspring of Noah, this covenant is enforced today with us. It's also a covenant with all the animals. In verse 12, God says that it's between me and you and every living creature that is with you. It applies to future generations. The covenant is between God and flesh and the animals. God says that never again will all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
Here is more evidence that this flood was global. It's not just a localized flood. There have been localized floods, some resulting in death. I'm not going to take time to list them here, but we know of them. And we've seen local flooding in the past week here in Hollister. But if the great flood was only local, then God either lied or changed his mind. But we know that neither is the case with God. He doesn't lie and he doesn't change his mind. Now, it does not mean that God will not one day destroy the earth. Now, it says in 2 Peter 3 and in Revelation that this will happen. Well, it will happen by fire and not by water. You see, those who worry about global flooding because of melting glaciers, they're worried about the wrong thing. And lastly, note another significance of the Noahic Covenant. God said in Genesis 8.21 that he would never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Despite what man deserves, God's promise is to preserve mankind until the Savior, who promised in Genesis 3.15, born of woman, will come. He will not wipe man off the earth. Because the Savior is coming. The Noahic covenant points us to Christ and God's promise of redemption whole world will not be just. He preserved the family to continue in that time because the Savior is coming. And again, it does not mean that judgment is not coming. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then in Romans 2 we read, Yet do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, all manner of evil and righteous unrighteousness, and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, there will still be judgment. But just like Noah and the ark, God has provided Christ as a rescue. When you look at the rainbow, and we might see one today, when you look at the rainbow, remind yourself of the sin of man. Remind yourself of your sin. Remind yourself of God's power to punish sin. In Noah's day, it was through a worldwide catastrophic flood. Remind yourself of God's promise of patience with mankind. And then remind yourself of God's patience with you. Remind yourself of the promise of a Savior fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And then praise God every time you see a rainbow. Well, in the remaining part of Genesis 9, we read about sin. Like Adam before him, Noah worked the ground. And like Adam before him, he sinned. He got drunk, and he lay naked in his tent. Now, we don't know from the passage all that transpired involving Ham and Noah, but we know that something perverse happened. Despite having been rescued through the flood, they cannot help but sin. The intentions of man's heart are on you. 
we sin. We are evil from birth. Noah, like his offspring, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and Moses, and indeed David and Solomon, are flawed, sinful men. Yet God showers each with grace, just as he does us in Christ. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, dying at the age of 950 years old. This means he was the third longest living man since Methuselah and Jared. Genesis 10 gives us a list of the nations and people descended from Noah. Generations born only because of the grace God granted in the midst of a lost generation. As we conclude, not only this morning, but our study of this passage, let's ask what we can take away from all this. Well, first, recognize that every person, me, the person next to you, and indeed you yourself, every person is a sinner deserving God's judgment. Recognize that like the generations of Noah's time, that without the grace of God, that I, the person next to you, and you yourself, are lost. Recognize that just like that ark, Jesus Christ is the only means of rescue from God's judgment. And recognize that as Noah had faith in God, we, you, must have faith in Christ if we, if you, are to be rescued. If you've placed your faith in Christ every time you see a rainbow, remember God's judgment and grace. Rejoice and praise God for sending His Son to save you. But if you haven't trusted Christ, every time you see a rainbow, tremble in despair because judgment awaits you. And then turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Generations of sinful people were lost in judgment. Generations of sinful people are saved by grace. So I ask you, of which generation are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this passage, we can't help but marvel at your, your power, your sovereignty. Father, your holiness. You cannot abide sin and unrighteousness. It is deserving of judgment and punishment. It is deserving of your holy wrath. But yet you are a patient, a merciful, a gracious God who strives with man. You wish that none should perish. And your patience is designed to lead us to repentance. Father, I pray for any who are not here that know the that do not those who do not know the repentance of Christ, that they repent and come to Him, that they place their faith in Jesus, the only one who can rescue them from the hell of fire, the only one who can rescue them from the punishment of their sins, from your judgment on the day of rest. And Father, for those who belong to you, may we be ever grateful. May we be ever rejoiceful. May we look upon the sign of the rainbow as a sign of your care, your sovereignty, your power, Father of your promise. And may we praise you for your son. And all the people praise you.